So this morning, as we put our, our mind and our focus on, on Jesus Christ and his exaltation, and as he's approaching the great purpose for which he came, uh, his death on the cross, I want us to look this morning in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we're going to look at a few verses here. And my title for the sermon this morning, if you're able to get the notes or if you don't, but I'll give that along with you. The title for the sermon this morning is, is this, God is for you. God is for you. And I'm going to explain that statement as we go through and finding out uh, how we can know that to be true as we go along. So if you'll turn in your Bibles, Romans chapter 8, and you can follow along and listen as we, uh, as we go. What I want this morning, and my intent, it's really simple, and, and I hope I don't, won't be too long in what I do, because the passage is straightforward. I just want to draw out and remind us of these great truths today, this fantastic truth that God is for you. I want you to have the confidence by the end of this, the, the certainty that you can know that God is for you. What that will mean for you if you already have that certainty and that it will fill your heart. And if you don't know about that certainty, that you can have that, that confidence. You know, I want you to know where you stand with God by the end of this. And for those of us that do know, I want us to, to be filled with this great security, this great confidence. So we can, we can have the passion and the zeal uh, Paul does as we read these verses. So, if you've got your Bibles there open or um, screen there, Romans chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 31. I'll be referring a little bit through the chapter, but verse 31 is where we're going to start. We'll read through the end. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's have a word of prayer as we continue. Our great and glorious God, it is with joy that we come to your word this morning with passion and enthusiasm. The words we have just read, which we will ponder for a few moments now, are magnificent and encouraging. They lift our souls to great heights. We pray that as we read these, as we consider these now, that, 
that we would be filled with the same passion, the same zeal and joy and enthusiasm that Paul writes here with. By the end, we will be reminded, we will be filled with a certainty that you are for us. We thank you and praise you for these wonderful words. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, I want you to know that God is for you. And I want you to know this truth, that God is for you, not just in some ideological way, not just in some philosophical way. Like, yes, I know God is for me and that there is these things. But I want you to know that that God is for you in a very real, very powerful, mighty way. And that him being for you changes everything about your experience in this life. Everything you know and everything that you experience and everything that comes into your life is, is different, is, is better, is what it ought to be, knowing that God is for you. I've got four thoughts I'm going to draw from this in this regard about how God is for us and what we can know about God being for us. One, as we, we look, I want you to see that God is for you completely. He is for you actively. He is for you lovingly, and he is for you powerfully. That's the thoughts we're going to run through today and think through today. That because of Christ's death and his resurrection, God is working in you and for you every single day. No matter what's happening and no matter what's going on in your life and in the world and the things around you, God is for you, and he is actively, powerfully, completely, lovingly for you in this life. So let's think through these things. And I don't want to take a whole lot of time this morning because the passage is straightforward. I simply want to lift our hearts to see this glorious great truth and to praise in it. Firstly, God is completely for you. God is completely for you. As we we read our first verse of our text in verse 31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for you. But in that statement, in this statement that we read here, it says, What shall we say then of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? There is a question that arises, because we're jumping into the middle of a a conversation there in, in Romans, there's a question that arises from that text. Who is the us? Who is the us that he says that he is for? Who is Jesus or Paul talking about that says that God is for us? Uh, and all these great promises that we read here in these verses, who do they belong to? Who can say these are mine and, and I know that these are, are God's work in us? The answer comes at the beginning of the chapter here in verse one of Romans chapter eight, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. Later on, he uh, defines this just a little bit more and the whole passage does this a lot. But in verse nine, it says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So who is the the us that he's talking about here? It's those who are in 
Christ. It's those in whom the spirit of God dwells. Those who have been saved from their sin, who have given their lives to Jesus and who have believed him and who now have the great spirit of God dwelling within us. The promises that are here, the promises that we've read about, that God is for you and that God is for you completely and actively and lovingly and powerfully that we're going to look at. These promises are for the people of God. To the Ephesians, Paul will say, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. The resurrection which we celebrate, well, we celebrate it every Sunday. That's why we meet on Sunday, but which we will celebrate in its great fullness and glory next Sunday. The resurrection reveals to us how deeply and how passionately and purposely God is for us. We see the depths of God's love. But as we think about this and as we think, well, if, if what God says here is that God is for us, And we've seen that there's a definition of who that us is, that the us is those who are in Christ, those who have believed Jesus for salvation and in whom the spirit of God dwells. That means that then there is a group of people for whom God is not for. That God is not for. When we've read here in in verses, we've seen some of that definition already. We read verse 6 of chapter 8 a moment ago. Uh, or, do, or we'll read verse 6, Romans 8, verse 6. It says, for to be carnally minded is death. So carnal in, in the, the Bible definition, the way it uses it is to be, to be fleshly, to be of this world. It speaks of being not spiritual, of not being in Christ. So it is the opposite of being in Christ. So to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Verse 8, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Some may say, well, God doesn't seem to be for me. And the truth is that that is in many senses true. But the real question is this. The real question is not so much, is God for me? The real question which pertains to us, which matters and which changes how all of this is and how it thinks, the real question is, are you for God? Are you for God? That's the the question that, at least from our perspective, from our side of the conversation, makes so much of the difference. Are you for God? For many of us, the answer is going to be yes. And, and I would say probably for most people, the answer, if you ask them, are you for God? Do you, do you love God? Do you like God? Is, is, are you favorable toward God even? The answer for most people in one way or another is going to be yes, that sure, I am for God. But for most people, the answer that yes, I'm for God is a yes, I'm for God really only in as much as I think he is for me. That is, I will be for God for as much as I think that I can get stuff out of God, which is going to benefit me. So really what it is, when we, most of us are saying, yes, I am for God, what we're really saying is I'm for me and God is, should be for me. It's a selfish way that we understand these 
these things. That really, I'm for God as much as I think that he is for me, which means when difficult circumstances come along, when trials come along, or when confusion comes along and we don't know uh, who God is or understand what he's doing, then we very quickly abandon him because we think he's not for me, because I'm not getting out of it what I want. By our own will, naturally, when we're born in this world and by our own will, we are against God. We are his enemies. We are not genuinely for God. We are opposed to him. And as we read in verse 8 here, our half-hearted attempts to please him, our half-hearted attempts to try and make some sort of relationship with him amounts to nothing. So for things to change, things to change, God must come to you. And this is the message of Easter. This is the message of the gospel, of the resurrection. This is at the the heart of what we celebrate during these weeks ahead. The resurrection, that God has come to us. So what I want to leave us with today, not now, but when we get to the end, to leave us with is that you can be, no matter where you're at today, no matter what your relationship is with God right now, You can be absolutely certain that God is for you. And that's what we want to understand today and learn and grow today. When God is for you, what we see from our passage here is that when God is for you, God is always for you. And I mean that in the greatest sense of always for you. In verse 28 of Romans 8, It says here, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. These he justified, these he also glorified. For those who are in Christ, for those who are God's, he is always for you. The the purpose of those few verses there is to remind us that God is for us from the very beginning, which beginning means eternity past all the way through to eternity future. God is always for you, always from beginning to end. And his love for his people is not a weak and flimsy Love, it's, it's not a whim. It's, it's not flighty or easily manipulated. What you don't know before you were saved, before you believe Jesus Christ for salvation, is that God was indeed for you, though you weren't for him. He had planned to save you. He had planned to draw you out of your sin and into his Salvation. He chose you. He called you. He predestined you to be like his son. He predestined that you would be with him forever. In this process, he conforms us to be like Jesus. He has planned to care for you every step of the way. And in doing this, God gave his son for you. Gave his son for you, and he did so in love. This Easter season. 
we come to tells you how deeply God is committed. See, the, the only way of salvation is the most costly price you could possibly imagine. To sacrifice your son for someone you love, well, that's hard enough. But God gave his son for a people who didn't love him at all, who don't care. And God gave his son in love. And he did this willingly. See, when I say that God is for you, I mean that God isn't for you because he has to be for you, because it's his obligation to be for you. God is for you because he has chosen to be for you. He wants to. He loves you. It is, it is his pleasure and it is his joy to save from sin and to give abundant life. This is what brings him joy and glory and praise and, and honor and, and, and abundant pleasure. Even though the cost is immense, far more immense than we can comprehend. He wants to do it. And in so doing, God withholds nothing from you. Because he is for you, he doesn't hold anything back from you, but he gives everything we need for life. He gives you life. He gives you eternal, abundant life. He gives you everything you need to live that life for him. But he gives us life, but with that life, he also gives us freedom. You see, before we were in Christ Jesus, we were for ourselves. We were bound as slaves to sin and slaves to self. That's what we were born into, slavery. We were born under the condemnation of sin, which means death, because we have to pay for the debt of sin that we owe. So we're born into this condemnation. We're born into this slavery to sin and a slavery to our own selfish desires. But Jesus frees us from that. We're no longer bound by what my, my passions are, my earthly carnal passions. And I'm no longer bound by sin and I'm no longer locked in chains of condemnation. But I'm free to live for God and I am free to enjoy God. To love him. He withholds nothing from us. He gives us full, abundant life. He gives us freedom from sin and condemnation. And he gives us his spirit. This is much uh, of, of what Romans 8 is about. Much of Romans chapter 8 is about the life of the spirit in the believer and what that means for us and how we're to live with the spirit's work in the life of the believer. He tells us that the Holy Spirit is is our assurance, our guarantee of our salvation. It tells us that the Holy Spirit helps us live this life that we've been called to, that we've brought, been brought into. He helps us to grow and he helps us to enjoy the life that God has given us. Well, that's the, the first point and the longest of the points that I've got this morning. We'll move quickly through the next one, but God is completely for you. Secondly, God is Actively for you. Verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It is, uh, it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. 
who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. God is completely for you and God is actively for you. He paid the ultimate price. He tells us there or he reminds us there that Christ died for our sins. He's not passively for you. See, I'm a, you know, when it comes to, to football, people ask me, what, what football team do you support? And I say, I half-heartedly support the Eagles, which means if they're on and I see them, I'll cheer for them and I'll watch them. And if they make it to the finals, which, you know, who knows what's going to happen this year, I'm on their side, I'm cheering for them. I am a half-hearted, very passive fan. So I watch them. Now, when it talks about God being for us, God is not a half-hearted or distant fan. He is not a, uh, a spectator of this. He is not for this in the sense that he stands on the sidelines and he's cheering for us, hoping that we'll do good. When I say that God is for us, he is actively for us. That means he is involved in what we're doing so that we can be everything we need to be. He is empowering us. He is moving us. He is doing everything that he can and needs to do for our good. He's actively working for your good. He's accomplished all the work on your behalf. He didn't just show you a way to salvation and say, look, here is the standard. It is absolute perfection. And look, you, here's the law, and I'm giving you the law so that you know what I expect, and that, that's it. Now, if you just keep that, you'll make your way up there, and you'll be, you'll be good. And then stand on the sidelines and go, come on, you can do it. I know you can do it. Oh, it's falling down. Come on, get up. You can do it. And just kind of cheer us on to do our own thing. No, he has accomplished it on our behalf. He lived the perfect life. He lived righteously and fulfilled the law. He died on the cross in my place because he could die perfectly and I couldn't. He took my place. Our sin is what condemns us. Jesus takes care of what condemns us. He died in your place, taking your sin and taking your guilt and taking your shame. He sacrificed himself for you, which is why at the beginning of chapter 8, he can say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. For those who do not believe Jesus, for those who have not accepted the sacrifice that Jesus made on behalf of them for sin, the wages, the payment, the debt is death. But for those who have believed Jesus, who have believed that Jesus died on the cross for their sin, that debt is paid. There is no condemnation. Acts 16 says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Saved from your sin. Saved from condemnation. Which is why the second half of Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says, so the first half says, for the wages of sin is death. The second half says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He paid the ultimate price. And having paid the ultimate price, he reigns. He reigns in power. We read verses about that just a moment ago when we started in Philippians chapter 2. But see, his death is only part of what he has done for us. 
we are reminded in our text here that he rose. He rose from the dead. If he stayed dead, everything we're talking about is wasted and empty. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. But Christ is risen from the dead, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is, Christ rose from the dead as the guarantee, the promise that all those who will come after him, that believe in him, will also rise from the dead. And having risen from the dead, having paid the debt of sin on the cross, been buried and rose from the the grave, he has then ascended into heaven where he reigns. He sits at the right hand of the Father. This is a place of power, of authority, of rulership. Therefore, Philippians said, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. He reigns. There we're also reminded, he says, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Jesus intercedes. See, Satan accuses us. Satan stands before God, which is why Paul can write in verse 32, uh, uh, or verse 32, who, who condemns us? Who can bring a charge against us? Who can condemn us? Because there is trying to condemn us. Satan tries to to lie and convince uh, Jesus Christ that we are not what we ought to be. That's why he is called the great accuser, the deceiver, and the tempter. But while Satan tries to accuse you and tries to convince the, the, the Father and the Son, the Spirit, that you are not worthy of their love, Jesus defends you. He is your intercessor. He intercedes for his people. You see, Satan can try all he wants. But Jesus knows the price he paid for you. He knows what he has done for you. He knows what salvation he has provided for you. He knows the depths that that forgiveness goes to. He knows the width that that forgiveness goes to. It is unending. Nothing that Satan can bring up, nothing that anyone can bring up, can convince Jesus Christ or the Father that he has not paid enough. He knows the depths and he defends you. 1 John chapter 2 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you might not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, an advocate, a defender, one who fights your case. God is completely for you. God is actively for you. Thirdly, God is lovingly for you. Verse 35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No one, no one can take you from God's love. Satan will try. Maybe you've experienced this. He will will try to get you to doubt God's love for you. 
He will try and, and use your sin and your guilt against you and rise up within you the shame of what you've done and try and convince you with, with that guilt and that shame that God can't love you. The truth is no one can take you from God's love if you are the object of his love, if you are in Christ, if you are one of his, no one can take you out of his love. God will never let you go. John chapter 10, verse 28, says that he knows his sheep. He describes him as the shepherd and us as the sheep, and he knows his sheep, and no one can pluck them away from him. No one can take you from God's love, and no circumstance can take you from God's love. He talks about tribulations and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and sword and says these are the things that will come upon the people of God. These circumstances may shake your faith because we get in them, we can't see the purpose or we get confused by what's going on and we maybe we get overwhelmed and even in the midst of them, whether they're the trials that come from without us or maybe it's the battle with sin that's going on within us as we're battling to become what God wants us to be. But none of those circumstances can take us from God's love, but maybe they shake us and maybe they, they cloud our view of God and we think maybe he's not there and maybe he doesn't love us. God will never let you go. No circumstance can ever separate you from God. God is completely for you. God is actively for you. God is lovingly for you. And fourthly and finally here, God is powerfully for you. Verse 37 says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He says in verse 37 that he makes us conquerors. He makes us conquerors. But you see, I'm not the conqueror. And I'm not victorious because of what I do. He is victorious. He is the victorious one. He is the one who has overcome sin and death. He is the one who died the perfect sacrifice on the cross for my sin. He is the one who was risen from the dead as the great and glorious God and Savior, defeating sin and death. He is the one that provides life and joy and peace and glory. He is the one that is alive and reigning forever. And because he is victorious, he makes me victorious. Because he lives, I will live. Because he has conquered sin, I can conquer sin. Because he reigns, we have confidence that he is in control. No matter what the picture looks for you, looks like for you right now, the end is beautiful. Be fully convinced of this. Paul writes in verse 38, for I am persuaded, convinced, 
convicted, assured, certain that nothing can separate me from God's love. Be persuaded of this. As a child of God, you are his forever. You are his forever. God loves you. That is not a statement we make, a, 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 you know, a trite thing that we make to put on bookmarks and bouncy balls to give to children in Sunday school. It's truth. It is a grand and glorious eternal truth. God loves you. And his love is complete, active, loving, powerful. He is for you. My aim today is simple. That you will go away today, switch off with confidence that God is for you. That he is for you. That he is completely, actively, lovingly and powerfully for you. Now there are two ways that that can happen today. Two ways that you can leave today and finish this this live stream service knowing that God is for you. The first way is this. If you already believe Jesus, if you have given your life to him and believe that he is your savior from sin and have given your life to follow him, trust God. The God that saves you is the God that will keep you. Read the words that Paul says here in his promises and know for certainty, I am persuaded. If you are a child of God, if you have believed Jesus as your savior, you can switch off this camera today and you can know with absolute certainty that God is for you. He is for you in every possible way he can be. That's the first way you can go away with confidence. The second way is this. If you are unbeliever, that is, you haven't believed that Jesus Christ saved you from sin. You have never uh, given your life to him. You have never understood or followed this idea of what the gospel is. Right now, as you sit here and as you watch this, you can have no assurance that God is for you. These words, these promises that we have just read, that God uh, it will never separate from you, that God will, will love you forever, that God will, will keep you and hold you forever, these are not yours. But they can be. Today, things can change dramatically for you. You can switch off this and know for certainty if you believe that God, who is perfect, and pure and sinless and above all, the one who created you for his glory, willingly sent Jesus Christ, who also is perfect and sinless and glorious to die on the cross to pay for your sin knowing that you are a sinner and needed that payment, that I cannot reach the standard of God, but instead Jesus died in my place. 
to pay for my sin. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, conquering death, conquering the power of sin in our life and making eternal life available, this comes by confessing your sin to God. That is to recognize, to admit that I am a sinner and that God is not and he is glorious. And then following Jesus, I will give my life to you. When those things become true, like any of us who have already done that, you can with confidence say, God is for me. But until that time, we haven't got that assurance. So I pray and I plead with you this morning. If that needs to be you, confess to God, seek him. Contact me if you need more information. Because what I want for each one of you today, believer or unbeliever, is that when we turn off today, when we end, you can glory in the fact that God is completely, actively, lovingly, and powerfully for you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this great opportunity we have this morning to be reminded of your great love for us. A love so deep, so glorious, and so eternal that it has been your purpose from eternity past and will continue on forever and ever. Accomplished through the death of your son, would die for us. But there is such joy that comes the heart, such excitement which comes by reading these words, by being reminded that you are for us. And that as we enter into this season of, of rejoicing over the gospel, the accomplishment of the gospel, we are reminded just how amazing, how deep, how complete it is. Let us focus our minds, dear God, on this this week. Rejoice and let our hearts be lifted up to you in praise and honor because you are worthy. Thank you and praise you for these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, I hope you've been able to be encouraged by God's word this morning. Again, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you haven't been sure please contact me. You can contact me through the media you're on now, email or phone. All of my things are available through our website because I want you to know that God is 